Last week we saw Paul and Silas were beaten. They were thrown into prison uh, as a result of casting a demon out of this, this poor girl who had been enslaved and was being exploited for profit. Um, and while they were in prison, there was this great earthquake that God has caused, and, and it shook open the gates. And in the moment, the jailer who was responsible for them, um, in, in absolute desperation, decided, because my prisoners have escaped, I'm going to kill myself. Uh, and he pulls out a sword, and he's ready to do that. And Paul shouts out, no, stop, don't do it. Uh, it's not as bad as you think it is. No one has escaped. And the jailer does indeed stop. And then he runs, or, or he goes to Paul and Silas, and he asks them, what must I do to be saved? And they give this simple answer. They say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he does. And the jailer and his family both rejoice at this new faith of his. And eventually, uh, we find that the, the city leaders realize who they are and, and have this change of mind, and they they apologize, and they send them out of this town, and they leave. And so our text today is picking up. After they have walked out of that town, and where they go to next is what we're seeing today. And they're going to travel to these two different cities that we're going to look at today, uh, Thessalonica and Berea. And each of these cities are going to respond in a very different way. Uh, and so uh, very, very different uh, as these strange men are proclaiming this glorious gospel to them. Uh, so follow along, Acts chapter 17. Uh, we're going to read beginning in verse 1, and then we'll pray and we'll jump into it. <clears throat> 17, verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollolina, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out of the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as a security from Jason and the rest, they let him go. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let us pray. Wonderful God, your gospel has indeed turned the world upside down. Uh, beginning 2,000 years ago, and it continues to turn the world upside down one life a, at a time in our day and age as well. <clears throat> as we work through this text this morning, we ask that you would enlighten our minds to make sense of it. Help us to then understand this moment in history as we look back to it and help us to apply it to our own moment in history. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So they're headed to Thessalonica. It's about a 95-mile trip, most likely on foot. You can imagine that's a long way. Uh, the question we have at times is why do they go, where do they go? One of the most likely reasons that they head to Thessalonica at this time is that there is a 20-foot wide road. They would have called it a highway. We would have called it a, a trail of some sort. Uh, but it made, made travel easy, and so they headed that way. 
Thessalonica is a very big city, about 200,000 people, meaning it's bigger than the city that we are in right now. Um, So it's a lot of that. It's unlike Philippi in the sense that they have a synagogue. And remember, it required 10 Jewish men uh, to have a synagogue. And one of the things that tells us is that there's at least some presence of of Judaism in this town. And so that's where they go first when they get to town. They go straight to the synagogue and they start speaking to the Jews. And they spend three Saturdays there, three, three Sabbath days, and that was Saturday for the, for the Jews. And uh, so our text says that they are reasoning with them from the Scriptures. Have you ever reasoned with someone from the Scriptures? Or has someone ever reasoned with you from the Scriptures? And I ask this because likely you have. You know, someone has a question about um, just about anything. You know, what's true about God? What's true about the way God works in history or salvation? And, and you begin to point them to the Word of God and saying, you know, look, 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 look. Um, you know, issues like, um, can Jesus be your Savior and, and not your Lord? Or, or Calvinism, you know, does God choose you or does, uh, do you choose God in salvation? And so this reasoning from Scripture is just pointing to come to an understanding from the way God has revealed himself in Scripture. Uh, in the case of our, our text today, what we're seeing is um, <clears throat> what must be true of the Savior who God promised in the Old Testament. Uh, and they're pointing to Scripture to see this. And so the basic argument is, is this. <clears throat> First, guys, I know you're waiting for a Messiah. I know you understand there's a Messiah coming from the Old Testament. Uh, second, according to the Old Testament Scriptures, the Messiah that you are waiting for uh, must suffer, must be killed, and, and must be risen back to life. And when you see that word here translated explaining in verse 3. Uh, literally, that means to open. Um, to open. So they take the scriptures and the idea of the pictures, they open the scriptures, even though they didn't have Bibles like this. Uh, they open the scriptures and they, and they showed them. It doesn't tell us what they showed him, but because of what the stated goal is in this argument that he's making, we can be sure, or, or most likely anyway, that Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6, um, which was written hundreds of years before Jesus' birth, uh, was one of the things he must have looked at. It says, and, and that text in Isaiah, you don't need to turn, I'll just read it to you. It says, Surely he has bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So I don't know if you realize it, but up to this point in the argument, he hasn't even mentioned Jesus. Not a word about Jesus. He's only pointing to this Old Testament Messiah that they're looking forward to, um, that they're waiting for. And he's telling them, listen, the Messiah you're waiting for must suffer um, and, and, and must die for our sin. And so then the third part of his argument is when he finally mentions Jesus. He says that, that Jesus is the Messiah the scriptures speak of, that all the prophecy is true in Jesus Christ. And I think, you see, we, we still help people reason through their understanding of who Jesus is, understanding of what Christianity means, uh, and, and, and just that need to have faith in Christ. And, you know, we might call it apologetics. We might call it just reasoning from Scripture. Uh, it's simply just helping people understand the truth of, of Christianity. Um, C.S. Lewis, one of the most helpful ones in my life early, early on. Um, you know, he reasons in, in what is now quite, uh, you know, a very famous kind of statement when he says we can't just accept Jesus as as some good guy or or a moral teacher. Uh, In fact, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity puts it this way. He says, I'm trying here 
to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept a view that he was and is God. I mean, statements like that, he's, he's reasoning. And the important thing that we understand in this, you know, even as we consider this passage today, is that they're reasoning from divine revelation. Not, a, not apart from it. He's not trying to prove God from mere reason alone. It's not uh, the watchmaker argument or the ontological argument, these, these things that have been drawn up in history and, and try to prove the existence of God apart from any revelation from God. Um, those always fail eventually. It's also not based on feelings. It's explaining God within and from the scriptures, which are God's revelation about himself. And so, um, to put it simple, we must reason from revelation, um, divine God-inspired revelation. Uh, this can be complex at times, but it can also be as simple as, as the understanding when you reason to a child, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. In our passage today, though, they're, they're proving, um, you may understand the argument, not just that Jesus did die and, and suffered and rose from the dead, but that it was absolutely necessary for him to do so to be the one that was promised in the Old Testament. That if he didn't, he, he simply wouldn't be the Messiah they were promised. Uh, and after this reasoning, then, comes this, this proclamation. Um, you know that word proclamation, it means simply to announce uh, officially or publicly, and that's exactly what they do. Verse 3, they announce publicly, This Jesus whom I <clears throat> proclaim to you is the Christ. And remember, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is a title that means Messiah. So what he's saying is he's proclaiming Jesus is the Messiah you've been waiting for. And that concludes his, his argument. And, and so the question then is how well is it received? And, and we see it here in the text. Well, some of the Jews believe. That's good, right? Uh, a great many of the Greeks believe. That's encouraging. Not a few Translate, that means a whole bunch. Uh, Luke does it a lot. It's kind of Yoda-like. But he says, not a few of the leading women believe. This is great. Uh, they reason from Scripture, proclaiming the gospel. That's an ordinary means of grace, uh, an ordinary means that God has given his church, and some of them come to saving faith. But in verse 5, we see that not everyone believed, did they? Jealousy rears its ugly head. Some of the Jews want to put a stop to this proclamation. And so they gather the wicked men of the rabble. It's a great phrase, isn't it? The wicked men of the rabble. Uh, I looked this up in a few other translations to think, what in the world is a wicked man of the rabble? The NIV translates it as some bad characters. 
The NLT, that's the New Living Translation, says some troublemakers. Uh, King Jimmy says certain lewd fellows of the baser sort. Phrase that has never, ever come out of my mouth. <clears throat> Back there, there's some lewd fellows of the baser sort. Work that into a conversation this week. Uh, the Holman version, which is a fairly recent one, says scoundrels from the marketplace. And so they're pirates or something. Um, with all of those, I hope you're getting the idea that basically they're putting a mob together for some, some people that are genuinely rude, uh, corrupt, people who want to riot or whatever this might be. Uh, it sounds, you know, like what happens here is this riot breaks out uh, and, and they go and they attack the house of Jason. Well, that's weird because the first time we ever heard of Jason, what did Jason's house do, right? Uh, who is Jason? Why him? And, and the odd thing here is that we don't know anything about Jason. You know, it's a biblical name. This is probably one of those biblical names you didn't even know was a biblical name. Um, because we don't know who he is, but we do know that he's shown hospitality to this traveling group. Um, in the past, every other situation when someone's done this, it's because they have come to faith in Christ. Uh, and, and, and so we're, it's probably a safe assumption that he's heard the gospel, he's believed it, he's welcomed them into their house, and then immediately he's paying for this. Uh, the accusation then, you know, remember they dragged Jason and a few of these men, but not, not Paul and Silas. But the accusation is um, against them as these men who have turned the world upside down, have come here also. This is one of those situations where they mean it as an insult, uh, and that it's really one of those phrases that is love. Um, it's kind of a great description of the gospel, the way that it turns the world upside down. Uh, you think of this, it'd be a, a terrible thing if the world were right side up to begin with. Um, like turning a car over or turning a car upside down when it's rolling along just fine, that's a bad idea, right? Because it's already going well. Um, and, and <clears throat> but if you find a car that's on its roof, turning it upside down is the right thing to do, right? That would be helpful. Uh, and ever since Adam and Eve were ushered out of the garden, the world has simply been upside down. And, and you know, I mean, you know from your own experiences that the world is not right. And so they might mean it as an insult, but it is a good thing to turn the world, to turn an upside down world right side up with the gospel. They also accuse them there in verse 7. Uh, you see that it says, acting against the decrees of Caesar. See, the magistrates, the, the city leaders had this, the authority to actually make people um, swear an oath of allegiance to the king, to Caesar, right? Uh, and that was something that could be done. And so when Paul says something like, oh, uh, follow Jesus, uh, this, this Jesus who will come again as the king, this sounds an awful lot like treason. I mean, he's explained things so well in other places that we understand that, that really they're just spinning what Paul's saying here. You know, they've made it this political issue and this hope that it's going to sound like Christians are trying to overthrow Caesar's power. Uh, we know that's not their intention. Paul's later is going to write in, in Romans 13, uh, that Christians are to submit to the governing authorities. Um, really shouldn't surprise us, though, that this, this sin of jealousy, uh, you know, James talks about the progression of sin, that this sin of jealousy, and um, some of the Jews here has now led to the, the sin of lying or deception at the very least uh, to get what they want to be done from these leaders. In the end, it does cost Jason financially. <clears throat> he pays what is like bond money, um, and, and he presumably loses it because they leave town later. Uh, before we move to the next section, though, I want you to consider that phrase in verse 7. It says, 
Uh, it speaks of Jesus as another king, right? Um, instead of Caesar is what they're saying. There's this, this tendency, I think, for men and, and, and women uh, to make Jesus just another king in our lives. You kind of add him on. Um, what's wrong with this is that Jesus is not just another king. I mean, if we know anything from, from Scripture, it's that Jesus is the king of kings, the real king, the eternal king. And, and we, don't, we don't, as a culture, function as a kingdom, right? So we don't really understand this idea. It seems strange to us when we hear about a king. But uh, when, we say that Caesar, when they say that Caesar is king, they mean that they are to love Caesar, to obey Caesar, to promote, and to serve Caesar. Uh, the same is true and when we talk about Jesus as our king, not as something that is forced. I mean, forget that aspect, but <clears throat> we are to love Jesus, to obey Jesus, to promote and to serve the interests of Jesus. We are to delight in Jesus as our king. And this section here then ends with them once again being driven from the city despite many coming to genuine faith. Uh, and so, <clears throat> church, this response continues to happen today. Violence is still often the response to the gospel all over this, this blue and green globe we call the earth. And, and I mention that so that you remember, be praying for your brothers and sisters in faraway cities who are, are, are facing violence for, for the very gospel we speak of today. <clears throat> so let's look at this last section. We're going to be in verse 10. Uh, and as we read this, I want you to take notice. Notice how the Bereans, uh, the people in Berea, respond different. So follow along, verse 10. <clears throat> The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too agitating and stirring up the crowds. <clears throat> then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted uh, <clears throat> Paul brought him as far as, as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him, as soon as possible they departed. And so again, this trip, out of the town they go. It's a 50-mile trip from Thessalonica to Berea. Uh, to put that in perspective, if you were to walk out this door right now and start walking, uh, it'd be the city capital in Topeka. So if you've ever been over there, you, you kind of have an idea of how far they've got to travel for this trip. Um, so now the one thing that, that I've loved seeing in Acts over and over and over again is this constant endurance of, of Paul and all the other missionaries, right? Uh, they get run out of one city, and then they go into the next city, and they obey the call of God on their lives. They just follow the great commission they've been given, and they go straight to the synagogue, and they stand up and they start telling people about, about Jesus. Um, in each of these cities, there's this, this kind of wonder, you know, we walk in and we're going to preach the gospel, and they have no idea, you know, hey, maybe we're going to end up in someone's house tonight who's going to show us hospitality. Maybe, maybe an angry mob will try to kill us. Who knows? Either way, let's preach the gospel, and they do. Um, it's kind of like once bitten, twice shy, except they never get shy. They just keep proclaiming hope to the nations no matter how many times they get bit. Uh, in Thessalonica, the Jews became angry quick, remember? Uh, real quick. They didn't bother to listen to much, and they formed a mod, mob. Here in Berea, the Jews who, you know, keep in mind these, these Jews, these are people with the exact same faith, the exact same religion. Um, 
<clears throat> as the last city that formed this mob, they now in this place are much more willing to, to consider what is being said. It's, it's kind of like if someone showed up in, in Topeka and, and they tried to explain the scriptures to, to the Christians at Westboro Baptist, right? It's not going to go well unless you don't know anything about Westboro Baptist. It'll make no sense to you. Um, but then you head over to Kansas City and you say, you know what? The, you, know, you start to explain the, the gospel to the Christians in, in Kansas City and, and they listen instead of you know, shouting terrible insults and making gross signs to pick at you. Uh, and, and that's kind of the different response we're seeing here, which is why he's saying, you know what, these Jews are more noble than those in Thessalonica. And, and, I, and I mention this because you've got to understand that the word noble here, we tend to think of it as far as like uh, English nobility, right? Um, you know, like titles and monocles and high tea and I assume marmot or whatever that stuff's called you like. Uh, <clears throat> sorry. Um, that kind of thing. But it's not, you know, what he means here is like it's high-mindedness. There's this, this reasonableness, like let's hear it, share it with us, tell us that. And, and he even specifically explains this, this phrase more noble in verse 11. He says, they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. You ever wonder why so many churches and Christian schools are, are called Berean? Berean Christian Academy, whatever it might be. Uh, it's because of this, this passage. It, it calls the Berean people noble, and it shows that they examine the Scripture daily. Who doesn't want to be associated with that? It, it's also why you never hear of Thessalonica Christian Academy, ever. No one wants to be that. And so they do. They receive the word with all eagerness, and, they, and, it, and it, to signify that, our text says they mark their hands with crosses. Now, I hope it can be said of us as a church as well that, that we receive the word with all eagerness. Like Psalm 119.97, when it refers to God's word as the law and it states, Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. And so let me encourage you towards nobility, towards in the sense that we see it in this passage. You know, we should all, like these Bereans, be, uh, when you listen to a sermon, to Bible teaching of any sort, have the word of God in front of you, see it. What I, what I mean is actually have the Bible open on your, on your text or a book or whatever it might be so that you can see this with your own eyes. Otherwise, you're likely to just to listen to people who are merely entertaining or, or who are charismatic in the way they speak, and they're not bringing forth truth from the Scriptures. Okay, you got it? Keep the Word in front of you so you can see for yourself what's in the Word. Let me give you an example. A few moments ago, I said the Bereans marked their hands with crosses, Right? to signify that they received the word? Raise your hand if you realize that is nowhere in our text. How many of you thought I was going into heresy real quick? <clears throat> I'm impressed by how many hands just went up. Um, <clears throat> because you understand that, you know, I, I, I made it up. It's not in the Bible's in front of you. And, and that's kind of the point why you need to be looking at this. Now, I'm never going to intentionally do that to you, but, but even I want to have the accountability to know that you have the word before you also. Uh, you know, right in front of you, so that when that kind of thing happens, you are thinking in your mind, what is he talking about? That's not here, right? Um, so that's it. You know, what you're being taught should come out of the text. 
And so they examine the scriptures we see here, and that is a significant thing because they didn't have the Bible on their iPhone. They didn't even have the Bible in a paper form, like I mentioned. If they wanted to read the Bible, they had to actually go to the synagogue. Can you imagine if you had to come to this building at any point during the week uh, if you wanted to read the Bible and, and find a scroll and, and roll it out, and, and that's the only way you could do it. And yet we're seeing the Bereans did that. They did that daily because they're hoping to learn from the scriptures um, something new, right? Or or something they're able to understand from it, to be able to put it into their daily use or or simply just to know God better. It's kind of like the way we we function today where um, some of you are brilliant and you do nothing on social media. I commend you. But but, but many of us have this thing where we're like, I need to check Twitter again. I need to check my Instagram again. See what's on Facebook. There's just constantly going back to it all day long and this hope that you're going to find something interesting, something that you need to know, uh, something that might be of value to your life. And the truth is there is so much more you need to know uh, for living life found in the scriptures than you're ever going to find on any social network anywhere. So we need to come to the Word expecting to hear from God, to, to see from Him, to learn something wonderful. Uh, and I guess, I guess we hear this in the practical question that arises, well, well, how often should we read our Bibles, right? And, and that's where on me, almost any answer I give you is going to then sound fundamentalist, right? That's too many. That's too little. Let's burn him. Um, <clears throat> sorry, that's always the end result in Monty Python, right? Um, but let me, let me put it this way. I, I don't typically listen to the Pope. I don't. But since my doctor is Dr. Pope, I make an exception. Um, <clears throat> two years ago, I went in for a, a checkup. And, and he said to me, you know, you need to start working out. Say, once a week? I said, really? Just once a week? And he said, no, you should work out like four or five times a week. But since you're doing it zero times right now, how about we start with one day? All right. And it's the opposite, you know, he was telling me just the other day about, you know, I'm telling him, you know, so when can I splurge and have a burger and and fries? And he's, "Uh, how about once a month? And I'm like, once a month? You mean like twice a week, right? No, once a month. Um, So anyway, I don't don't understand what your current time in the Word is or what it looks like, but if it's nothing right now, um, and I don't say this to, you know, condemn you or make you feel guilty, but if it's nothing right now, then, then once a week would be great. I mean, do that. That's what you do. If, uh, you know, you find 15 minutes of unrushed time, uh, so, you know, and, and some of you, you know, you're thinking once a week, really? Uh, well, no, but if that's your starting point, then yeah, once a week. Uh, more ideally, I, I hope you're going to find, you know, at least uh, every day a few focused minutes to be able to be in the Word where you're not distracted by a hundred other things and, and, or, or where you're able to just read from the Word or maybe some devotional that is just saturated with the Word, right? Um, and I know every January we, we tend to get excited and we're like, I'm going to read the Bible in a year and I got this thing. And, and I think it's a great idea. It really is. But, but sometimes that means we just race through things. Like, you know, my finger touched every word. I don't know what they said. Um, and you get in such a rush that we just want to check it off and we miss it. And so it really is better that you read less quantity, but really soak it in. Meditate on it. You know, find some time to just be in the Word. Um, and so again, all this talk about Scripture, probably we should get back to our Scripture a little closer. Um, so what's the result of all this examining, right? They're examining the Scriptures. What is the result? Verse 12 tells us, Many of them therefore believed. Many Jews, Greek women, and men believed the Gospel. This is glorious. Praise God. Um, 
But you still have those bitter people back in Thessalonica, and word gets to them uh, that these same men that Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke, I presume, uh, are all proclaiming Jesus, and they're so jealous, they're so bitter and angry that they actually travel these 50 miles by foot or donkey or something uh, so they can come into town and combat him. And again, something like a riot occurs, and the traveling party splits here, and they, they go different ways. They send Paul down to the seas. That just means the ocean. Uh, and Silas and Timothy remain in Berea longer. It doesn't tell us specifically why. Uh, most likely, you've got these new believers, and they're there to strengthen, strengthen them, to encourage them, to give them some initial teaching, uh, things of that nature. Uh, they do all meet up again in Athens. <clears throat> where Paul is going to proclaim the gospel of Christ on, on Mars Hill. It's a very famous text. We're going to be there in a few weeks. <clears throat> uh, next week, though, uh, Ryan Sear is going to be preaching for us in Genesis 19. Uh, and then we're going to have Easter, and so we're going to begin Mark for the, for the week of Easter. And then we'll be back in this text, only it's going to be Sam Cassing who will be, be preaching then. So <clears throat> last time he accused me of giving him this like, really difficult text, and it's totally true. <clears throat> and this time he gets this glorious text. So, it all evened out. Um, <clears throat> so I want to bring this to a close for us, and, and I want to do so by thinking about how we are to live in the kingdom of God under the authority uh, of the King of Kings, who is our Savior, Jesus Christ. See, uh, there's this change of authority that, that happens, right? When our, when our eyes are open and we believe the gospel, uh, and, and I'll, I'll tell you a story. I, I heard it this week, and it really um, it was an interesting story. Uh, on May 17, 1954, the Supreme Court ruled that racial segregation in public schools was absolutely unconstitutional. And so three years later, on September 4th, um, as African-American students were attempting to integrate into Central High School in Little, Ar Little Rock, Arkansas, the governor, a man by Arvel Fabus, I don't even know if that's right, um, <clears throat> the way to pronounce it anyway, it is the right guy, uh, he ordered the Arkansas National Guard, right, their National Guard of the state, to stop these students from entering the school. And these soldiers followed the, the orders that they had been given of the governor, uh, <clears throat> who was their authority, and they refused to let these students enter into the school. Um, but then President Dwight Eisenhower got involved, um, and I'll just tell you, Dwight Eisenhower was a Presbyterian. He was born in Texas, and he is born just down the street in Abilene, Kansas. Um, that's just extra stuff. Uh, anyway, Eisenhower, 19 days later, federalized the Arkansas National Guard. You understand what that means? It means that these soldiers now follow the orders of President Eisenhower, not the governor. Uh, and so <clears throat> now they've got these new orders. The exact same guards are now protecting these students as they enter their new school beside their new classmates. And I, I share this story with you because it illustrates um, <clears throat> how our submission changes from one king to another king. You know, the soldiers were the same. The only thing that changed was, was their leader. And so their orders changed completely. It's, it's kind of like we saw with Paul on the road to Damascus, right? He's on his way. I'm going to go cause suffering for these Christians in this town. Uh, and suddenly he meets King Jesus. And, and, and after this encounter, it's the same Paul, right? He's the same guy. But his orders are now coming from a new king. And, and, and King Jesus tells him, you know, rather than going to stop the gospel there, uh, as you were planning to do, now... Now you're going to go out and you're going to proclaim the gospel. You're going to be part of the spread of the gospel. I mean, these, these soldiers in 1957 were trying to stop integration, and then their leader changed, and their, and their orders changed, and, and their new orders had them working to create integration. You see, 
you and I would do well today if we better understood that, that with faith in Jesus, this, this, you know, this <clears throat> new faith that we are brought into the kingdom of God and placed under the lordship of Jesus Christ, who is our king. And, and what that means is that as we examine the scriptures, as, as we're going through these scriptures, we know, we do so so that we might know uh, what our king has done for us and, and to know how to live in a way that is pleasing and honoring to our king. And so our, our hearing and our seeking to obey the word of our king, our God, is not how we gain citizenship in his kingdom. It's not. You know, what, what comes there, that comes by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. There is nothing connected to works there. But seeking to obey the word of our king it is a way of life for those who are citizens in this kingdom. So brothers and sisters, long live the one only holy, abundantly gracious and eternal king, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, the Lord Jesus is not just another king. He is the king of kings, the savior of the world. Help us to understand what it means to be under his rule each day that we have been given life. Make us to love the king and to honor our king and to proclaim his glory to the world who may or, or may not acknowledge him as king today. God, give us Berean-like uh, love for your, your holy word. And make us bold to proclaim your gospel so that we too might be accused of turning the world upside down by proclaiming the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.